That was lovely, wasn't it? Honouring mothers and passing out daffodils. We're going to continue this morning our series in Ephesians. We're actually going slightly out of order, um, and this morning we're going to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 to 9, if you would like to get your Bibles um, or other devices um, out on the passage. And this one remind us, this is all in the context. Have we got the right? No, that's interesting. That's not actually Ephesians 6. Is it not? 5 to 9, sorry. Sorry, Fee. I don't have it, sorry. It's all right, I gave you the wrong one. No, that's, that's, that's the week we've missed, which we'll come back to later. Just remind you of the context. This is a sort of mini-series within Ephesians that Daniel kicked off at the end of Ephesians 5, where it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then almost immediately, after a couple of verses about spiritual songs and prophecies, it goes on to say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that is, in many ways, one of the most important outcomes of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Daniel taught us a few weeks ago. And it's how Paul then continues this chapter, this theme. And he picks on three situations. We've looked at one. We've looked at marriage, husbands and wives, and how that works out. We will look at children. And today we're looking at the topic that is called slaves and masters. But just before we read it, I just want to explain it in context a little bit. First of all, we will have an image of what slavery means. It's really based around that horrendous slave trade and the plantations in America and all the cruelty and inhumanity of that. That is not really what Paul's talking about here. Slavery at this point in history was probably better described as bond servants, people who sometimes voluntarily had, had committed to be slaves because they knew they would be better looked after that way. Slaves in this time of history were able to buy themselves out of slavery, but many chose not to because actually it was a more secure and certain life. And in fact, many of them were very important people in society. A lot of doctors in Ephesus would be slaves. A lot of lawyers would be slaves because they would not be Roman citizens and therefore their only other main category, unless they were a foreigner, was to be a slave. And that was fine. So we just need to understand that context so we don't get hung up on this point about slavery. If you want to understand Paul's position on it, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 20, he explains a bit more the impact of the gospel on slavery. But I think for us today, this has a much wider implication and a much wider application. This is really talking about anywhere where we serve. Anywhere where we serve somebody else. In this fallen world in which we live, God appoints authorities, and they are imperfect. Whether that's your boss, whether that's the person you volunteer to do, whether it's the person you volunteer to hear, whether it's the traffic warden, whether it's the ticket inspector, they're all imperfect incarnations of authority. And this passage, fundamentally, is teaching us how we relate to authority 
to the glory of God and for our eternal good. So I want that to be in your mind. This is what we're looking at, how we relate to any sort of authority, to the glory of God and for our eternal good. And the passage is giving us four keys. I'm going to mention them just before we look at it. The first is we need to recognize our true servanthood, who we're really serving. The second is we need to fear the right person. Do we fear man or do we fear God? The third is we need to be able to serve wholeheartedly with undivided hearts. What does that mean in our busy, noisy society? And the fourth is we need to recognize there is both judgment and reward for our daily service. What we do every day in our work, in our families, in our schools, has an eternal significance. So those are the four things we're going to look at. Let me just read the passage. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So first of all, we need to recognize our true situation. And to do that, we've got to go back right to the beginning of the story. Genesis chapter 1. And the story starts, doesn't it, in a garden of breathtaking beauty, of stunning fellowship and friendship, of amazing joy and peace. And then suddenly, tragically, it all goes wrong. One act of rebellion rips that old beauty apart, mars everything, and lets in the powers of evil into this world. It lets in the power of sin and of the devil and of death, which since then has reigned in many lives and many aspects of society. It's exactly what we were praying about this morning, wasn't it? What was that first sin? What was the root of it? I have a habit of asking questions. So some of my friends here know that. So that's a question. So what do you think? What was that first sin? What was the root of it? Daniel knows he shouldn't answer because he should know the answer. Anybody else? Come on, be brave. There's only 40 of us here. Pride. Absolutely. Pride and independence. I need to buy you an ice cream or something afterwards. Okay, Mike. Pride and independence was the root of where this all went wrong. Which is why submission is so key to the restoration of all things. And with humility, it is at the core of the kingdom. Submission and humility are the way everything is restored. And it's the core of the kingdom of God. And I think it's why it's such a difficult word. 
And it's even difficult to say it. <laughs> Submission. Submit. It, has, it doesn't have a nice ring to it, does it? And yet it's how Jesus lived. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve. Same word as we've read, doulos, slave, and to give his life a ransom for many. And of course, Philippians 2, verse 6, even more. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant. Same word, doulos, slave being made in human likeness and being found appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The apostles got this, I think. They got this example. Listen to how they introduced themselves at the beginning of their letters. These, these, are, these are the guys who founded the church. These are the guys who planted churches. These are the guys who broke into new nations, who soon saw miraculous things happen. This is how they introduced themselves. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, Romans 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, Titus 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, James 1.1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 1.1. And finally, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, Jude 1.1. That was their first identity. They were a servant of Jesus. That was before their apostolic calling. That was before anything else. They, they got this. They were profoundly impacted by their time with Jesus and their recognition that being a servant of his was a great calling. We talk a lot about identity nowadays, don't we? Our society talks enormously about identity. And as Christians, we rightly focus on being children of a heavenly father. We are all children of God. We're sons and daughters of the king. And that is an amazing truth. We can never, ever, I think, overemphasize that. We can never, ever not live in that. It frees us from performance, as Daniel was saying. The reason we don't need to perform, well, we're children and accepted as children. And that's such a key foundation. I'm sure the early church rejoiced in it, but it seems that as much as that, they found their identity in being servants of Jesus. That's not something I've thought about so often. I don't know about you. But for them, they were proud of being servants of Jesus. They found their identity in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder whether, while emphasizing the one, we've drifted into a little bit of, of an over-familiarity with God because we've forgotten the second one. They obviously held both. And the reason is, that underlies all of this, and the, the apostles understood this, and the early church did this, that fundamentally, all humanity, all of us are slaves. That's the fundamental truth. Either to sin, or to righteousness. You see, we're all created beings. We all have a desire to worship. We all have a need to worship something. We are not actually, as humanity, self-sustaining. We cannot create our own identity, however hard we try. 
We can't create our own meaning or significance. And I think this is the main reason why our society is so rife with mental illness and depression and addiction, because people are trying to create identity themselves. We don't have the capacity. It says in Romans, don't you know that who you offer, when you offer yourselves to someone to obey them as slaves, you become their slaves? Whether as slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Though you used to be slaves to sin, you've been set free, but you've become slaves to righteousness. <laughs> We're all slaves, but being slaves to righteousness is freedom. Being slaves to sin is addiction. There's that wonderful poem, isn't there, Invictus, Nelson Mandela's favorite poem. But I'm afraid it's not true. No man is the master of his fate. No woman is the captain of her soul, however hard people try. And it's in that trying that creates so much depression and mental illness. And that's the message that we've got to bring, that there is freedom in serving Jesus. And trying to create the whole thing in your own identity isn't gonna work. You know the most popular song at funerals? At non-Christian funerals that is played? I did it my way. It's that last desperate cry as people die to somehow let get hold of some sense of identity. I did it my way. And it's desperate. It's a tragic delusion. And it's a trap of the evil one who we know comes into this world to steal, to steal, to kill and destroy. He steals happiness, he kills peace, and he destroys beauty. There is, however, a true and perfect freedom where we can fully and joyfully enjoy ourselves in submitting to God and to each other. There's a daily prayer that many Christians pray called the morning collect. And uh, I'll read a little bit of it. And in the first line, it talks about God being the lover of Concord. I don't think, he, don't think it means that aircraft. <laughs> Beautiful though it was. I was brought up by where Concord was built. It's lovely. It means unity and peace. But let me just read the first couple of lines. O God, who art the author of peace and lover of Concord, in knowledge of whom stands our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom. What a great prayer to pray every day. <laughs> It goes on about protecting us, but it says, whose service is perfect freedom. This came home to me many years ago, one of the turning points of my life. It was a point when I was first um, going out with Nikki, which in itself is a major turning point of my life. <laughs> I won't say how many years ago it was, and I would tell you it was back in the decades, <laughs> and it was. <laughs> And it was the first time I encountered a church like Trinity and a movement like Regions Beyond. It was called, I'm not even sure it was called New Frontiers then, it might have been called Coastlands. Um, I was a very committed, involved, but essentially independent Christian. Turning up at church, enjoying it, being involved, getting, getting lots of stuff from the sermons, going to group. But to be honest, I led my own life largely as I think many Christians and maybe some of us here still do. 
And I was challenged when I met a church like this by the concept of submission to leadership. Now, it doesn't mean a heavy thing. This wasn't a, someone's directing your life and telling you what color your wallpaper should be or anything silly like that that people were saying at the time. It was simply being willing to ask for input from other people and being prepared to follow it, even if I didn't like it always. And so submitting my life to something bigger and more effective and more powerful. And the crunch came to me when, um, at one of these Bible weeks, Terry Virgo uh, told a story, or it's a picture really, which changed my life, I think, um, it did. It was a picture, a story of two horses running in a beautiful field. And they are young horses, Anna's enjoying this, and uh, they're enjoying the sunshine and the freedom to go everywhere and to gamble and to play together and eat the grass and so on. And then suddenly, one day, some men came along and captured one of the horses and took it away. And the other horse was still free and still continued to enjoy everything in the field and, and the freedom, though obviously missing the other horse, but it was still free. The second horse was taken and put in a dark, big stables. And there were locks put on the door and it couldn't go wherever it wanted. And then, even worse, men came and started fixing bits to it and bridles to it and taking it and saying it could go here and go there but nowhere else. And then eventually, in part of the process, there was a saddle put on it and a man even sat on it. And he lived in this dark place, not often seeing the sunshine and gradually being the world would be broken in. And then many years later, the first horse was in the field, gambling around, enjoying everything, and it saw coming from the distance a carriage. And it realized it was the king's carriage, and it was awesome, beautiful. It was taking the king somewhere, had all the footmen and all the gold on it. And suddenly, the horse recognized that one of the horses pulling the carriage was its old friend, the one had gone. And that horse had lost its freedom. The first one was still gambling around. But what it had gained was enormous dignity and purpose, because it was now serving the king. And that first horse sitting in the field, I don't know how horses think, <laughs> recognizing the freedom it had was also seeing what it's missed and the purpose. And that story changed my life. Because <laughs> I suddenly thought, yeah, that is what submission is all about and the purpose of it. And we can choose to do that, it's a choice. That's the wonder of it, it's a choice. Because often you find yourself submitting to someone who is no better than you. In fact, they may not be as good as you at various things. You may be playing in the worship band and submitting to Gareth, you may be a better musician. It's possible, I suppose, is it? <laughs> you may be submitting to somebody who isn't as intelligent or as gifted as you. But it is the way to, to come back into serving Christ. Sometimes, like King David, you submit to someone who's essentially unjust, who throws spears at you, King Saul. But he never, ever disrespected Saul. He continued to respect him, even when he threw spears at him. And in that submission to each other, our submission to Christ becomes real. I think it's very easy to say, Jesus is my Lord. It's a lot harder to say, 
I submit to the people who's put in my life to lead me. But if you don't do the second, I'm not sure the first means anything. Does it really? It's a bit like how easy it is sometimes to sing songs. As Steve, Steve said last week, there are no solitary Christians. Equally, there are no independent servants of Christ. We all are dependent on each other. You may have a submission challenge in your life at the moment. I've had a few. They come up every now and then. It may be in church. It may be at work. It may be in somewhere else you're involved. We're here to serve Christ. And if we look to serving him, you will find this is a God-given way of growing in him, in whose service is perfect freedom. Second key, who do you fear? Who do you reverence? The contrast is very clear in this passage. You have a, we have a choice. Do we either try and please men and fear them and their view of us, or we try and please Jesus out of reverence for him? It's a verse I came across in my preparation that really struck me. Galatians 1 verse 10. Paul says, Am I seeking the approval of men or of God? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. If I'm still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Ouch. I don't know what you feel, but to me that's ouch. I still struggle with fear of men. I suspect many of us do. The reason we don't say what we could say to people, the reason we don't pray for people in the way we could pray, the reason we don't challenge sometimes is because we're fearful of what they will think. Fear of man is binding us up. I think as a, as a church, as in a community, if we could deal with fear of man, we would make a huge impact wherever we live. Spurgeon said, the fear of God is the death of every other fear. <laughs> the fear of God is the death of other, every other fear. It's a sermon on its own, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and I don't think you can create fear of God. I think you just ask him to meet with us continually in awesome ways. But I think if we could only grasp that, it would transform our impact in the world. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is... Can anyone finish the phrase? Our God is a, a consuming fire. Is that your picture of God? Remember those horrendous fires we've seen in the last year? Those walls of flame rushing through California, Greece... Our God is a consuming fire. Something to talk about at group, isn't it? The early church is described in Acts 9.31. Strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, they grew in numbers, walking in the fear of the Lord. This was the atmosphere of church life. And as I say, if we could only encounter that, I think we'll be free from fear of man. In fact, let's just pray. If you, if, if fear of man is something you struggle with like I do, just raise your hand. And I'm just going to ask God to break him. 
Father, we want to be courageous and bold for you. And we acknowledge that too often we're fearful of what people think. Come now, Holy Spirit. We, I pray you touch us now, but more in the days and weeks ahead with such a sense of reverence for you that we are free from fear of man. And I speak against fear of man in this place. I rebuke it in Jesus' name. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you will work in us as a people that we will not fear what man says and will be bold and courageous because we love them and we want them to hear the truth. Thank you. Amen. The third key is to serve wholeheartedly or in verse 7 or with sincerity of heart in verse 5 it's talking about an undistracted undivided heart now in the bible heart means something different from what we think it does not mean our emotions it means something much bigger the heart is our innermost being it's what makes us who we are so it is a combination of our thoughts our desires our motivations our wills and our emotions it's what moves us it's what your mind goes to when you're thinking about nothing else it's what our daydreams are the heart encompasses all of these which is why in proverbs which is all about daily living the heart is mentioned 28 times because how we look after our hearts affects so many things in fact Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your life. Guard your heart, sorry. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Somebody else's favorite verse. <laughs> it's the wellspring of life. <laughs> we need to guard it. And that means many things. But one thing it means today is this. Doesn't it? It means what we do with these iPhones or whatever smartphone you have. I was going to look up when they first came. It must be about 15 years ago, maybe slightly more, when none of us had these things. Now most of us have one of these. Now these are great tools for us as a church, for communication, they're great tools for outreach, they're great tools to learn things. It's one of our greatest advantages and tools. It is also probably our greatest distraction if we're honest. It does both of those things. <laughs> yeah, there's a few smiles. <laughs> because the aim of social media is to distract. That's, you know, if you actually see what Facebook and so on says, they say actually our aim is to distract you, is to hook you in, is to emotionally connect you. It is to, it's very clever, and it's actually to disturb our hearts. It is to stop being single-hearted it is to divide our hearts and lose our whole heartness because we get distracted by you know what did that person say or or for me what's going on in the world or what about that game or can i follow that twitter link it, it draws us in it causes a distraction we need to be talking about this <laughs> we need to be talking in our groups about how can we help each other to use these well. We need to be challenging each other and being accountable. I suspect most of us read our Bible, the living word of God, less than we did 10, 15 years ago because of these, if we're honest. So let's help each other. 
Let's help. <laughs> Thank you. That's a little bit late. You were meant to do that earlier. <laughs> Distraction. Andy, Andy Crouch has written a great book called The Tech-Wise Tech Family, and I encourage you, if you have children, to get it, because this is such a massive area where we have children. He says, the pace of technological change has surpassed anyone's capacity to develop enough wisdom to handle it. And that's so true, isn't it? And we've got some catching up to do. There's a lovely quote from Bill Bob Baggins, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan like me, about what it feels like when your social media time has got out of control. This is what Bilbo says, I feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. Isn't that good? Isn't that what it feels like? I feel thin, because I've all got distracted. My heart is not together. I feel stretched, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. Let's talk about this in our groups. Let's talk about this in our families. If we don't beat this one, it will really limit us. There's no doubt about it. It's a great tool, but it's also something, if we don't get in control of our phones and social media, rather than them subtly controlling us, let's have whole hearts that aren't scattered, but are focused and powerfully joyful. There are a lot of ideas that we could talk about. We could talk about having a, a day where you don't use your phones. People sometimes have holidays where they switch them off completely. We could talk about a different routine for what we do on Sundays. There are lots of practical things we can help each other in just to break that habit. Lastly, fourth thing, there is a judgment and there is a reward. I haven't heard this preached for a long time. It quite struck me when I read this. This is Ephesians, this is talking about day-to-day -day life. And what is talked about here is judgment. The judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. The point at which Jesus comes and judges the world. And Jesus himself talked about this. He said, the law, the, the, that he will reward everybody for everything they do. Matthew 16, 27. Luke 12, 36, Jesus says, even our words are recorded and careless words we'll have to account for. And actually, we'll be there as well. We sometimes forget that, that we will all stand before that judgment seat. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, is very clear. He says, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done in the body, good or bad. That will be an awesome day. That will be a shameful day in some respects. Everything you and I have said or done will be played back to us. It is essential for justice and holiness in the universe that that day happens. Because without that day, there is never full justice. That is the day when God puts right everything that has gone wrong in this world, every single thing. There is a day of complete restoration, but it includes judgment. Revelations 20 tells us there are two books. There is a book which records everything. 
And Jesus will go through that with us. The things we've done. There is a second book called the Book of Life. And if our names are in the Book of Life, then in a sense of salvation and being with him, it doesn't matter what's in the first book at all. It's washed over, it's gone. But actually, there is a reward for the first book. That's what this passage says. There are rewards for the things that you and I do every day in our lives, at work and at home, that honor Jesus. I don't often think about that, do you? The way we live our daily lives has an eternal significance. This life is really just like the cover sheet of a book, isn't it? Big book, that little cover sheet on the front. And in a way, our life is just like the cover sheet, and eternity is the book. And again, we need to remind ourselves of that. If you're a Christian living in a tough part of the world, you know all about the main book, because the cover sheet's pretty grim. But our cover sheet's rather exciting and involving, isn't it? as we said with social media and so on, and we forget sometimes it's only the cover sheet. It's the book that matters. But, but, this is a strangely important cover sheet because there are consequences. It does actually matter. How we live today has consequences. Now, we won't be less or more happy because of what happens because we'll be with Jesus. But there is reward, there, there are differences, there are things we will enjoy as a result of what you do as you go into work tomorrow. And what I do, and what we do in our families. We have that lovely phrase we've taken from the film The Gladiator. What we do today echoes in eternity. Actually, that's true for all of us every day. And in fact, in some ways, that's one of our theme songs, I think, for this church. That we want to get hold of, that what we do today in our work and at home and everywhere echoes for eternity. And in fact, it's not what we do that matters, it's how we do it, according to this passage. It doesn't, there's no greater reward for an apostle than for you doing the, the words. There's no greater reward for what you're doing it's all about how you do it. There's no greater reward for a prime minister, bless her dear lady, than a cleaner, which is probably what she might want to be at the moment. But there's no greater reward for the job. The reward is for how you do it. Yes. Do we do it in serving Christ? Very briefly, just a couple of practical comments about how this works in practice. Because the Bible is always amazingly practical. I don't know if you find that, but if you're reading it often, you will find it often speaks to today in very little ways. So here are three ways that might speak to your situation. The first is, what if you're serving another Christian? Does that make a difference? I mean, that obviously happens here when we volunteer. But you might have it in work, in school or whatever. I've had the situation both ways where I've worked for a Christian and Christians have worked for me. It can be a bit awkward, you know. Because what happens is, if you're not careful, people get a bit familiar and take things for granted. And so the Bible speaks to us. 1 Timothy 6, verse 2. Those with believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they're brothers. Instead, they should serve them even better because they're dear to them. What if your boss or the person you're submitting to including be it the traffic warden or the ticket collector, is unjust, incompetent, or cruel. Not that, of course, that those people are any of those things. 
1 Peter 2.18 Slaves, submit yourself to masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. There is no cop-out here. And the reason is simple, is because we're not primarily submitting to that person anyway, with all their faults, that boss you have to work for. We're submitting to Jesus through this person. But the key is we want to submit to him. And then thirdly, and this is beautiful, if you're serving non-Christians generally, this is a wonderful opportunity to make the gospel attractive. Titus 2 verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. Please them, not talk back to them. It's quite specific. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. You know the way you and I behave at work makes the gospel beautiful. Now the gospel is the gospel. It's amazing. We can't, you know, it's, it's just incredible. But actually you, you and I can make it even more beautiful according to this, simply by the way we live, by the way we relate to our teachers at school, by the way we relate to people at home. We make the gospel beautiful. What an amazing opportunity. We're going to finish, but we're not going to sing a song, because I don't think it's a sing a song morning, really. This is about putting into practice. Sometimes if we sing a song, it's like a cop-out, you know, we've done it. No, no, <laughs> we don't do this here, we do this when we go home, we do this tomorrow, don't we, Richard, at work, and all those challenges. That's what we do. So let's stand. Thank you. And just to remind us, and then we're going to pray. How do we relate to authority? For the glory of God and for our eternal good. Well, first of all, we recognize and rejoice in our identity as servants of Christ whose service is perfect freedom. If you don't know that today, come after and talk to me afterwards. If you are trying to create your own freedom still and it's not working, come up and talk to one of us afterwards and we will show you the way to find the one whose service is perfect freedom. We're going to seek to grow in fear and reverence of God and put to death the fear of man. We're going to live wholehearted and undivided lives, guarding our hearts in a hectic, noisy and overstimulated world. And we're going to live in the light of eternity, knowing our daily work and lives matter and have an impact on that eternity. Let's just lift our hands. Father, those are big truths, and we've only scratched the surface. So I pray, as only you do, by the power of your Spirit, would you make these words live yes. for us through this week and even through the months? May there be some here who, in years to come, say, that was the point at which I understood. That was the point at which my way of living life changed. So Holy Spirit, you know each of us, you know our lives, <laughs> you know our hearts, you know our challenges. Just come now. Fill us again. This is all about being filled with you anyway. And I pray there'd be much fruit from this. Much fruit. Many people saved. Lives changed. <laughs> Jesus exalted because of the power of your word. Thank you. Amen. 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 We have finished. So please, there's time to chat and get to know each other. Catch up with each other. Talk about these things. Or if